that's in comparison to that. I mean, really. Praise God. And it's amazing how the Lord just seamlessly puts everything together, I think, as well, because what we just heard, again, just really resonated about the days. And sometimes you always feel guilty to come with just another warning of the days in which we live. But I, I can't get beyond that, because every day I'm just staggered at the speed at which the tide is coming in. Yeah. You know, I, and so I'm afraid it's, it's more of the same. It's more of the same. Um, I want you to, well, it's, it's only three verses, but Romans 1, 1, and Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I have the privilege of working in a Christian practice and the conversations are rich, but all too short because of the daytime job. And I was having a bite to eat with a, a colleague who works there. And we were talking about how does it look when we read to be separated unto God? And she said, well, tell me, what, what's that look like in these days when, when I've got kids, work, church obligations, you know, how does that manifest itself in the day-to-day -day expression of our lives, to be separated? And I think that's been a challenge of Christians throughout the centuries, and so often I think the church has got it wrong. You know, you think of the 19th century grey, joyless churches of men with brill-creamed hair and faded suits <laughs> condemning and admonishing their congregations and just bringing in guilt and suppressing the joy of what it means to be a Christian. Or on the other side, cults separate in a way because they just cannot engage with what they have on offer with the smorgasbord of what we have in society. So they pull away into exclusivity. But true separation is separation within another situation. It's a separation within. And that's a very hard thing if one is honest to gauge. I thought it was a good question that she put, but at the same time sad when you have to say, am I separated unto God? Because if you even have to say that, there's a, there's a bit of work to, to do, isn't there? So separation can be a religious straitjacket, but it's also, it should be freedom. Separated, liberated, free. Um, I remember as a child at school assembly that thing which our current children probably have no idea about where we used to sing Christian hymns and that Isaac Watts hymn where Jesus reigns where'er the sun. I remember those two lines because the imagery it gave where, it's, where we sang blessings abound where'er he reigns the prisoner leaps to loose his chains. 
And even at the age of eight or nine, I had this image of this man with long beard and flowing locks and a loincloth leaping and the manacles just bursting. An amazing image, but I couldn't contextualize it within the Christian faith at all at that time. But that is what it is, isn't it? That's the power of the gospel, to set the captive free, liberated, separated from that which is entrapping him. And I just want, maybe in a sense I'm, uh, I'm preaching to the converted here, but it does no harm to do a little sort of prophecy watch, as we call it on the web, isn't it? To actually have a look at what it means to be, what are we being separated from in society? Because when we consider our Christian heritage, the National Centre of Social Research brought out a paper about a month ago that demonstrated, I was quite horrified by, by it, but it cited the Anglican Church. Now, Anglican, I accept, it's just a name. It has no inference for, for if you're born again or not, but at least it gives a flavour. In 20 years, it's gone from 40% of declared Anglicans in an Anglican country to 11, which is just a fact I throw out. Islam, on the other hand, has gone from 1% to 6%. Well, if you follow those two lines, it doesn't take long to see a complete shift in our society with 52 to 56%, depending on the sources you go to, stating atheism. Now, it's not atheism in the sense that I don't believe in God, but as we all have seen, and again, I'm coming to a church which I know you're literate in this arena. But we're talking about a strident, militant atheism that is marching across our land mm. in a way which intellectual atheism and philosophical atheism never did in the past. Mm. What we've got now is, is a binary militancy, Marxist, liberal, which has permeated everything, mm. permeated the universities, per permeated lo local councils, all of the state schools and most of the private, healthcare, really everything. And it's chilling. And as our brother was saying, we may be able to preach outside for a while, but we can see pockets of people who are being picked up off the streets even now. A colleague has just been sacked. You may have seen it, in the, uh, a doctor in the Department of Work and Pensions because he was asked if he felt comfortable addressing a six-foot man who has a beard as madam. And he said, no, I can't do that, not as a Christian. And that terminated his employment on the spot. Another Christian brother who's a cheap is now in front of the GMC for fitness to practice because he stated his faith to a patient. There's a militancy there which I have never seen. I have never seen this. We also see in politics that we all know that when you take God's word out of a society, you are heading for judgment. Mm. When we look in the Old Testament, when God is mocked, you see judgment coming in one form or another. And we're at the tipping point now where we may not be fully in judgment, but God is allowing people to govern us who are leading us into that position for judgment, if not judgment itself. It's all on the cusp. 
And we live in a market town. And it has a very strong Christian heritage, as a lot of small market towns do. And the churches are like large schooners on the high street, large Victorian edifices with uh, steeples pointing up, really making a statement on the land. And those large ships are emptying. Grey-haired congregations, maybe half a, a dozen, who come habitually as opposed to through any sense of conviction. We all know Paul in Wolverhampton, you know, as he states, these large bastions of Christian faith are now being sold off as mosques, nightclubs, bars. The Elam Pentecostal Church, it's okay to say Pentecostal in here, isn't it? Yes. Where I came to faith in, in Edinburgh, is now Frankenstein's themed bar. And the John Knox pulpit is part of where the drinks are served. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. It's quite extraordinary. And one asks oneself, why is that? Well, again, within politics, we have seen this country wringing its, wringing its national hands in apology for its colonial past, of which it has a lot to be ashamed for. But within that, it's grouped the spread of Christianity, evangelism across the continents, forgetting that actually we had to be evangelized first. It's not coming from us. The gospel originated in the Middle East. We are recipients. But again, this militant atheism has, has fused Christianity in a way which is, is not right is not correct. And so now, if you're scientific or rational, you cannot be a Christian. It's impossible. The West has, taken, has been taken over by humanistic scientific reason in which Christianity has no place. And sadly, we have a, a paucity of Christian apologists who will stand up and give cogent arguments for the reasonableness of faith. And so we have to rely on people like David Belinsky, who I don't know if you know, I respect him enormously, he's an agnostic, and he's an agnostic because he says, I can't say that there isn't a God. So I'm going to fight for the very uh, argument that there is a God. And I think, where are the Christians who are doing this with the same degree of lucidity of argument that he has? Gay atheists arguing our, our point, Matthew Paris, Douglas Murray. Everything's upside down. Everything is upside down. So what we're seeing as we go around and speak are these, I don't know why I call them ships, but they're like sort of Victorian schooners, aren't they? You look at all the small architecture and then you've got this massive ship with its mast up and it's, but the sails are never unfurled. And what we have in those, in those ships now are hirelings who actually have taken the sextants and the instruments and navigation which plied the paths and passages of the ancient ways in which we find rest for our souls and they're plying new passages with new instruments and taking the church in a whole new direction. Today, today, right now, in Newcastle Cathedral, there's a, a day's conference on queering the church led by an ordained non-binary, I'm reading this because I, I lose track of the nomenclature, 
led by an ordained non-binary queer gender trans person. Ordained, a bisexual curate, a gay Catholic, and a queer Christian diversity and inclusion manager, whatever that is. And that's all part of gay pride in Newcastle Cathedral. This summer, another flagship of Christian heritage in this country, in Norwich. They've cleared the nave and put a helter-skelter in it. And if that isn't enough, you're going to get a full-size diplodocus in August because they're thinking of new ways of getting people interested in faith. I mean, have they lost their minds? Opening the ceremony of Parliament in Scotland a couple of months ago, the presiding officer cited same-sex marriage as one of the greatest achievements in Scotland, making it a progressive country. Citing yet again last week the Parliament flag flew the, the pride flag, as does Asda, Ikea, and everyone else in the NHS has a lanyard which is multicoloured. Not me, I hasten to add. And then the presiding officer said these tragic words. My own children may not know the hymns and the psalms that I was reared on, but like our young guests today, they know different songs, new songs for a new age. He said that with pride, with a small p. Proud of a progressive country that last year hit a record for abortions, 13,000. That's progression. Now, I accept these are polar events, and you all look totally unshocked, and I'm not surprised. And to a lesser extent, in every other church that we've been to, you see in the little adverts, bacon butty mornings, bric-a-brac, cake stalls. Again, a, a trembling hand of apology, reaching out into a community. With what? What, what are they offering? Nothing. Nothing. It's, it, it's shame. And then we have the mega churches which are burgeoning in cities, which are just alpha males peddling psychology. But at the centre of this is a single common denominator that un underpins this whole state, and that is the removal of the Word of God, the, the infallible divine Word of God. And as we know, when we rip out that, it's all open. We've done a fair bit of speaking of late, and if we go anywhere, now we Google to have a listen to the sermon before we go. Just in the past two months, this is only in Cambridge now, in Cambridge and Cambridgeshire, one church described the Bible as a museum piece. So our talk on the charity mutated into me holding up a Bible, shouting, this is not a museum piece, and I have a feeling the minister knew I'd listened to him. And good people sitting in that church under that authority, which was the most alarming thing. Another one that denies the virgin birth, another that celebrates gay marriage, and another one that preaches God, the God of Islam and Christianity to be one and the same. Another one had its mission station, having a better understanding of the church's relationship with the community and seeking how best to help it. They were having a steering committee. I mean, it's beyond the pale. It's a fear of offence. 
a desire to circumvent the offense of the gospel. The blood shed, the concept of hell and separation, of which comes without our Savior. And it, 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 it saddens me so much to see how many have fallen for this, ca- this counterfeit that's being offered. Mm. It's an illusory faith mm. that people are buying into attendance and loyalty and a brand instead of actually considering let it reasoning together, as the Lord says. Why would anyone sign up to a DNA of an emergent church? I cannot mm. understand. It's like mass hypnosis and deception. Mm. But 90% of the church has done this. Mm. And what we're looking at is the splutterings of the church. It's a collusion to hive, hive minded thinking. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands us to be separate but not separate to food banks, Mm. separate from the world. What we're talking about here is mixture. And it's incredible how the world has come into the church, and yet the world, and the church has accepted it, and yet the world will not accept the church to come the other way. It's a one-way street. Mm. The watchmen have left the towers, my friends. Mm. The gates are open. They're swinging on their hinges. And the defenses are down. And when that happens, the vanguard of compromise can come in. You don't even need to have the standards up because there's nobody protecting the gates. Mm. Now that can be at a corporate level, but I put it to you, it can also be at an individual level as well. When we lay down our defenses, when we open the gates of compromise to ourselves. Mm. We live in a rural area, as some of you know. And down our lane two months ago, there were two dead lambs in in the burn and two ewes dripping in blood because a dog had got into a sheep pen in lambing. And I had said to the guy who'd owned it, he he farms rare breeds as a hobby, I said, occasionally if I'm out with our dog, we have to put a couple of your lambs back because there's holes everywhere. And he said, I'll fix it, I'll fix it. Well, he didn't. And that's what happened. He lost four 800-pound sheep from a dog. A sheep pen must be bound tight. The sheep must be separated from the predator. And a shepherd is not doing his job when he leaves it open. Who would countenance a sheep pen that has a fox in it? Nobody. We cannot make two opposites dwell together. If we had salad dressing, you shake it. For just a moment, it'll look like a mixture. It's not a mixture, it's an emulsion. An emulsion separates, and you'll have the oil and the vinegar very, very shortly. Some states must always be separate. They always will be. Oil, water, night, day, a Christian, and the world. They can coexist, but in their natural and intended state, they are separate. And that's what Paul refers to. He is separated to the gospel of God. Logic states you can't dwell in two states. You cannot be a slave and free unless you don't understand the terms of your release and accept it. Paul states in Galatians 5 that we should stand 
fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Paul states his case so clearly in Romans 1, stating that he is a servant. He has given his allegiance. That is a contractual relationship as a bond servant to Christ. He has answered the call that has come upon his life. He has been obedient. And yet the most definitive statement he makes in that sentence is, is he is separated. There is no way back. That division has been made. And in Ephesians 4.1, he refers himself, interestingly, as a prisoner of the Lord. He's put himself in, in bounds to our Lord himself. I thank God that in this church you have a shepherd that meets his job description. Because actually it's quite rare in my experience. A shepherd needs to look after his sheep, but actually part of being a shepherd is to seek the maturity of those sheep such that they leave the sheep pen and become resilient and self-reliant after that. So the role of the shepherd steps back to oversee. Now the lambs down our lane by September are rugged, muddy, and totally self-reliant. That is a job well done. And yet too often Christians do not mature into sheep, but they stay in the sheep pen. <coughs> Medically, a good example I always think is the birth of a baby, where when that umbilical cord is cut, the blood, the blood flow changes direction. The first gulp of air empties the lungs of fluid. Air comes in. Valves in the, in the heart shut. The blood reverses irreparably. And that child is then independent completely from the mother. The mother has done her job biologically. And the child is breathing independent. And were to God that was possible for Christians in the church as well. And Paul alludes to that. It's interesting how the concept of being taken from the womb is replete in the Bible. Galatians 1.5, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. That call upon our life is so foundational for us to answer. There's a separation that comes, not just physically from the womb, but in a sense from everything which we know what it is to be human in society because God is calling us into a new reality through a new birth, a spiritual transaction. But with that, it's not just to stay as a baby, but it's to grow, to be separate. I had a patient in three days ago who, who came in. He's got a good job, saying his depression was bad, and really he wanted somebody to take responsibility for 
his, his, a lot of decisions he had made that were poor. He wanted validated in some way, but it wasn't mental health. I said to him, after I proffered a boot up the backside, which his father had done the previous evening, I said, what you're asking for is to me to take responsibility for you. And we had a talk about the millennial snowflake phenomenon. But he wanted somebody medically and pharmacologically, pharmacologically and psychologically to take responsibility for him. And I said, you are responsible for the situation you got yourself in. I gave him half an hour of very frank talking. And he thanked me at the end of it and said that he saw that I cared about him such I was honest. And that is what we need to be doing, not just with colleagues, but with ourselves, examining our heart and saying, are we separated unto the gospel of God? And looking, as Leo was talking about, things which we can, we can deceive ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to man up because the whole other adjunct of what it means to be a Christian is to come alongside brothers and sisters who are, who, who are suffering and uphold those hands and strengthen the shaking knees. That's mandatory too. What I'm talking about is discernment from admonishing and, and, and pushing into someone and supporting them. There is a difference. And we see in Paul's example, I think, that perfect balance, such that he can bang his fist on the table and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because he has had a divine encounter with Christ. And he carries around the pain of everything that he did before he knew Christ that tailors his pursuit of holiness and righteousness that he takes responsibility for. And yet, so importantly, he acknowledges that that is through not his strength, but it is through the strength of the Spirit. He does not make a call in his own strength at any point. Why? Because the gospel of Christ has inherent power. It has inherent power. Galatians 5.5. 5. This I have meditated on a lot. And I still am praying for full understanding of it. For we, Paul writes, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. As mature sheep on the hillsides of our, our lives, we must walk in the Spirit that through the Holy Spirit, faith granted by grace, we may stand on the finished work of Calvary. That we will be found righteous at the end through faith. It's a tortuous exchange but it shows us that it is through the power of the Spirit that we can stand, that we can speak. And it is through the power of the Spirit that we then have the ability to wait, to confirm 
but we will be found righteous by our faith in the finished work of Calvary. This builds on the muscular Christianity of the 19th century. People like Eric Little and C.T. Studd perhaps exhibited an extreme of this, where they talk about waiting and pressing on, much in the line building on Paul, of course. The illusion of an athlete and a soldier. And put simply, I believe it is true that nobody can run our race for us. Nobody can fight our battles unless we come to wait upon the Spirit. That when the Spirit indwells us and we relinquish our own strength unto Him, we then have the ability to stand separate and be found righteous by our faith in the blood. We cannot afford to entangle ourselves in the yoke of bondage with this world. We must rely upon the Spirit. To be truly separate, brothers and sisters, we cannot do this without the power of the Spirit. And yet so often we fall and go back, losing traction. And that is not the Spirit, that's just our choices that we make like that young man. Alana, when she gave her testimony, had a beautiful illustration. She described our mattress and the mosquito in the net over it. And she said how many, even Christians, are lying on a mattress. And when Christ comes and lifts the net and tells them to stand and be free, they are free and free indeed, no longer captive. And yet, curiously, when they no longer walk in the Spirit, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, seeking to confirm the freedom that they have in Christ, that they are separate, they are free. Over time, they creep back onto the mat mattress and bring the net down again. It was a beautiful illustration. Why would you do that as a Christian? Why would you do that? I did it for 20 years. I did it for 20 years and I rue the day till Christ came back and released me and then I walked in the Spirit. But a lot of that was my doing through indolence, through poor choice, through laziness and I wasn't relying upon him throwing everything in. As we heard earlier, as, as John said, if we come back and our house is burnt down, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. If we've been saved by the blood and we know we're washed in the blood and we know we are separated unto him. This has been a complicated talk because actually it's a complicated issue but the point I'm making at the start is that when we see the state of the world, when we see the state of doctrine that is coming at us, unless we are known to be separate and known to be walking in the spirit, we will not make it. I'm telling you that. We will not make it if we're relying on other people, if we're relying on vicarious and second-hand doctrine 
unless we haven't had a personal revelation of Christ in our lives, we will not be able to stand on the streets of Soho. Am I right, Ryan? It's true. But it's not just that. It's living like my friend. How, do I, how am I separate as a Christian? Get on your knees. Pursue righteousness and holiness. Audit your life. Get rid of the stuff that is holding you back. I'm encouraging you. I'm not admonishing you. I'm just telling you how it is. Because the tide is coming in. And I can't... Each time I speak, I feel more urgency in my spirit because I am stunned by what I'm seeing there. Yesterday I was told that Facebook is now banning Bible verses. Incredible. Going to another church, people coming in with a Cafe Nero cup. Nero on it as well. I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, I don't think that cuts it. I really don't. Where is the abhorrence of sin? Where is the getting on your knees? Where is the sense of conviction and repentance? And even as Christians who are pursuing God, we need to understand the holiness and the standards he, he puts. Now, that isn't to condemn us. It's to encourage us to pursue after him. Why? Because he affords us the spirit to make it. I relish my weakness. I relish it because I know that he is greater. And when I throw myself on his strength, there is nothing I cannot face. I saw that in Nigeria, even with guns at us. When I knew I was saved in him, it really didn't matter. And that is the place we have to get to. We have to pursue holiness and righteousness such that he will infill us by his spirit. So when persecution comes, and it will, and loss will come, think of China, facial recognition, travel bans and everything else. It's being trialed in Wales now. It will come. And if we compromise on the small things, we will compromise on the big. And I, for one, will not be in the group who fall away. By God's grace only. Not in my own. We spoke earlier, Galatians 2, 12, 12, 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the Christ which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why is that so crucial in Paul's testimony? Because following that proved that proved to give the, the, the counterpoint to the forces that were going to come against him as he was taken to Rome. If he did not know that his life was spent and he was dead already, how would he be able to stand when he made that claim to Caesar as a Roman? He would not have made it unless he knew who he was in Christ. The force of that statement is something we should all aspire to, to, to say, I am dead. Because elsewhere in the world, to affirm your faith, to say you are separated unto the God, if you're a house church in China, you can be hauled off. If you're in northern Nigeria, you can have a Fulani tribesman at your door, or Boko Haram at your door. 
So are you going to compromise at that point or are you going to say, I am dead in Christ and I will stand upon the strength of the spirit that he puts in me during this trial? The trouble is, brothers and sisters, in our society, it is more toxic because the threat is not manifest fully yet. And we are bathed in comfort and anesthesia. I feel I have one sermon to give, and it's the same every time, but it is, and I preach it of myself, it is the abhorrence of comfort that we need to develop. We need to get ourselves separate unto the Lord. It's so important, this separateness. Matthew Henry wrote that those who desire God's favor as better than life cannot but dread and deprecate his wrath as worse than death. There's two folds to, to everything. <clears throat> what Paul writes of this is the oil, the water. Why? Because when we consider as we in communion what God has saved us from, and this is one of the greatest motivators, is gratitude. When one thinks that I've been saved, restored, made whole again, my sins are spread as far as the east is from the west in Psalm 103. That sacrifice that was given for us, oh, we take it so lightly at our peril, so lightly. We should be meditating on it. I had the dog out before we came, and I was going through a wood, and I, was, I, did, I did break down at the beauty of the leaves of the trees and the majesty of the creation of a God and I thought the God who designed every fiber of this beech wood designed me and desires a relationship with me. I couldn't, I found that impossible to understand why that should be so. And yet it's true, isn't it? He desires a relationship with each of us so much that he gave us his son. And oh, if we could have a revelation of the truth of that, how different our lives would be. How different. So how do we respond to that? Well, it's at least to, as Timothy says, to flee these things of unrighteousness. To flee the flee is such a good word, isn't it? It's dropping everything and harem scarum running in the opposite direction. Fleeing and following instead after righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience and truth. But that's intentional. It has to be, it's an active pursuit. It's not passive. And there's the element of the desperate there as well, isn't there? The desperation of Paul slamming his fist saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, knowing the trouble that's going to get him in. Mm -hmm. Timothy saying, flee these things, knowing that we're frail and we need the spirit of God indwelling and expressing itself through us. I'm, I'm very aware of time because we've had a long sermon, so I'll cut to the quick. The final point, and maybe the biggest one, is again, we touched on earlier, that this is not all for our, our, our benefit, uh, although it's indirect, but the glory of the process of salvation is for the declaration of the holiness and righteousness of God himself. This is all for him, it's not for us.
Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. It is for his glory that he seeks a separated people. I read, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God. And here's the sentence. When I am sanctified in you before their eyes. God wants to be sanctified in the way we live before the world. That's an amazing statement. How can we offend our Father by living in any way that would be displeasing for Him, knowing that we're bound to, unless we allow the Spirit to refine us and submit to that authority? I close with just two, two other points. The blessing that comes from separation unto him is another form of separation or rather the inverse as Paul says that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor heights or depths or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the world or from, no from the love of God through Christ Jesus. We are wedded for time and eternity with him, never to be separate again. Hallelujah to that truth. So as we separate ourselves from the world unto God through Christ Jesus in the power of the Spirit, nothing then will separate us from the love of God. But the suffix to that is what will happen if we do not. Matthew 25 and 32. And before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. For if we do not separate, there's going to be a separation of sorts for everyone. And we are gathered here because we want to be separated unto the Lord for time and eternity. We don't want him to be separating us. The word separate is to definitively part two things which previously have been mixed. I want to be separate from my old man. And I want to be separated unto the love of God such that I will never be separated away. If we simply stand on the word of God, we will be separate from the world. That's my conclusion. We must be. Or the world will separate us from it because they don't want us. That is the concluding equation. So I come back to my friend. What does it look to be separate? And 
in the week I had a phone call from, she wouldn't mind me saying her name, Francesca, who's a young lady who used to work for us, a young mo a mother. And through the rejigging of the charity and the refining of it, we had to let her go. The Lord showed us clearly. But we stay in contact. And she sort of sees us like as a mentor, I guess, and phones up occasionally. And she phoned up in a state of just despair in the week and said that she doesn't know if God has accepted her or rejected her now because her prayer life is dead. She doesn't feel any fellowship. She goes to church, but it's dead. She's tried to talk to the pastor, and he just gives platitudes. I know that's what she was saying. It was in pidgin English, but I, I, I understood what she was saying. And she said that she just didn't know what to do. And I said, go and see Sister Doris, who, who does work for us. She lives in the same community. I said, talk to her and pray. And she said, I can't, she said. I'm too ashamed and too afraid of stating how my heart is. And she says, I don't know what I can do. So I sent her to see Pastor Kelly, and she's accepted that. But I said to her, you know, Francesca, you're in a very privileged position to be in that state, to experience that degree of anguish for, for God. It's the most honest prayer, isn't it? I dread the concept of feeling fine or nice. You know, I was asked when I came in, and I was determined to be honest today, so I said I was tired. I forget, maybe it was Chrissy I said that too. But to say you're fine or nice is vanilla and beige and magnolia and all those <laughs> things, you know. It's not acceptable. And the trouble is, as Christians, we we're we settle for that indifferent beigeness in our lives. And how are we going to be separate? How are we going to stand in the day if we're settling for that? So I said to Francesca, I said, praise God you're in anguish. Praise God you're dissatisfied with your prayer life. Praise God you want more of him. For that is going to carry you through. And we need to get you in front of a man who's going to pray with you and stand beside you and get your arms up to pray and, and support you and encourage you such that you can then go out again and be separate like the shepherd Kelly is. And she was encouraged by that. But I thought that is the prayer of separation. I, 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 for me, because I thought... If I am hungry for God in that way, I will not be going back into the mire. So I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you're struggling, if your prayer life is dead and, you're, and, and, and you don't know what to do about it, but you want to do something about it, if you're dissatisfied with your lot, praise God for that. Yes. Abhor comfort. Reject comfort. And, and, and we need to get pews back in here, John. <laughs> <laughs> Because that will drive you back to him. And that's a good place to be. And why? Because then we can celebrate our weakness again. And we can rely on his strength. And then everything is going the right way. Praise God. Praise God that his, 
His ways are not our ways. His economy is upside down to our, our understanding of economy. Thank God that when we're a prisoner under him, that we're then free. There's nothing the world understands of what it means to be separated unto the love of God. Praise God. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, the just the majesty of reading your word that is living. We thank you that with our, our, our frail human minds, our logic needs so much instruction by your spirit. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here and myself too that you would continue to disciple us, admonish us. Oh, but Lord, make us ready for the hillsides of rain and sleet and snow such that we can stand and be self-reliant upon you. Oh, Heavenly Father, let us just be submitted to you in all things. Ex examine our hearts, Lord, that whatever we're hiding, any secret sin, any, any sense of shame is not shame when it's brought honestly before you. Yeah. For that is what you seek. You seek openness and honesty. That yes, we can just come before you and say, oh, Lord, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. Yes, yes, Lord. Lord, you know how frail you, we are. Yes. You know... We know that ju judgment is coming because this country has, uh, has rejected you. And therefore, as your children, we stand quivering in a sense, just seeking your strength and your spirit, yes, that you will build us up mm. into your likeness and be useful for you in these days and in days to come. Yes. I pray for my brother Ryan as he stands upon those streets. Lord, we stand beside him yes. that he may know that there is the whole company of saints who are behind his, his call to do that, Lord. But equally, may we be encouraged by that to examine our calling and to go out and be faithful witnesses for the gospel of, of Christ in these days. We thank you and we praise you for the blood that was shed, for the freedom that comes in knowing you. And we ask this all corporately in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.